Okay, so I want to begin this evening, and unfortunately, I wasn't able to be here with you last week. My wife and I were traveling around, and so we weren't really able to be here, but I understand that Buck did a great job of kind of giving an overview of our end-time study and what we're going to look at, kind of presenting a, a, a historical, theological, biblical perspective of a little bit of the millennium. Now, that'll be played out further next week when Matt Morton comes, but specifically uh, focusing in on uh, the rapture and what we see as the pre-trib rapture. So I want to first express my appreciation to him for the stage that he set for those of us who will follow. He gave you this chart last week. Uh, this is one that we'll be, we'll be working from. Right now, we're kind of where that cross is, up to that first arrow that's pointing up, which is known as the church age. This is where we are. And then Buck covered that first arrow right there, um, known as the rapture. Uh, we place it there, uh, as Buck went through and talked about, because we do believe in a pre-tribulational rapture, meaning that the rapture, the exit of the church, will be prior to that of the tribulation. So if you're tracking with us on the pre-tribulational rapture, then we can move on to the next piece, which I'm going to cover, which is the period between that upward pointing arrow and the downward pointing arrow, meaning the return of Jesus, the tribulation. Now we have great tribulation up there. It is referred to as the great tribulation. This can sometimes be a little bit misleading because also the last, it's a seven year period. The last three and a half period of that seven years is also referred to as the great tribulation. So sometimes those terms can be a little confusing. So I'll mainly refer to the seven years as the tribulation period and the last three and a half years as the great tribulation. Uh, so as we move forward and we kind of look at this and we go forward, there's some logical next questions that we get to. So, all right, Buck, we have this pre-trib rapture. We see the church exiting. We see these things happening. So what's next? You know, is, is there this period called the tribulation? Is it seven years? Is it three and a half years? Is it a thousand years? How long is it going to be? You know, are, are we in it now? What's the nature of the tribulation? What's the, what's the purpose of it? Why do we have this seven years stuck here in the middle between a rapture and the return of Jesus? Well, we're going to get into that. We're going to look at that tonight. But before we do, I want to remind you of some goals that we've set for our study. The first one is we want you to be encouraged from God's prophetic word. A lot of scripture is prophetic, a large portion of it, not just revelation. But as we look back, particularly into the prophets and before, uh, there's a lot of prophecy going on. The uh, Matthew, a lot of areas in there. Um, also, we want to fight against eschatological agnosticism and indifference. We want to sharpen our Bible study skills, um, observation, interpretation, application. And I want to focus a little bit on that second one, because Buck and I were talking about this and when we got back into town and we were looking at it. And, you know, that really particularly defines my generation. There's this agnosticism, this kind of indifference towards the end times and end time studies, basically as Buck and I were talking, pointed out, because the generation in front of us was so obsessed with it. And so we had things, you know, um, I can remember going to my grandmother's church as a kid, and we, we sat down and we, we watched a video of a documentary of Jonestown, of um, George, not George Jones, Jim Jones. Um, <laughs> George Jones, Bob Jones, Jim Jones, you know, come on, no, uh, Jim Jones, uh, you know, down in Jonestown, and 
And then the pastor getting up and just talking about, oh, look at all this that's coming and happening and signs of things to come. And so then we watched A Thief in the Night, which is some of y'all probably have seen it in numerous times, the early deal on end times from the early 70s. And, you know, just this big plea to, to come now. The end is coming now. You know, my childhood was brought through the era of the Hal Lindsey books. You know, we started with the, the late great planet Earth. Uh, we moved down to the countdown of Armageddon. It's coming in the 80s. We won't get out of the 80s. The rapture is coming. Well, that didn't happen, so we had to rewrite a book. So we had another book come, you know, the, the, the planet Earth. And so there's absolutely no way any Christian is going to be left on this Earth by the time we get to the year 2000. Well... And so, uh, so either we're all in great disbelief and in trouble, or it didn't happen. And that defined a lot of my growing up. And because of this, this overall obsession, this, this date setting, this name your antichrist that came on, you know, my generation really became kind of indifferent, you know, agnostic towards it. Like people who obsess over this, well, they're just really kind of crazy people. Also, it's difficult because there's a lot of different ways to understand the book of Revelation. There's a, different, a lot of different ways to interpret end times, particularly when we look at, like tonight, we'll look at the tribulation. And so, is, did the tribulation already happen? Did part of it happen? And some more is going to happen in the future? Is it, is it all in the future? Well, you know, who knows what's going on? But I do want to talk about a few of these. There was a few handouts when you came in. Uh, I gave you one that is going to kind of give you these four methods. Um, you can jot some notes on there you want. Uh, really just kind of gave you a general page with a few jots on there so you could jot some notes. Um, you'll see some of the others that will be slides as we kind of go through to kind of have and take with you and jot notes on. But uh, one of the f- first views I want to talk about is this idealist view. And in this idealist view, Revelation or the book of Revelation presents these spiritual realities, I mean, that they're true for every generation. They're not really tied to anything historically or or any action. It's really just kind of looking at, well, in every generation, there's these principalities. There's good and evil and tribulation. It happens to all people. We all have good times, bad times, hard times. Um, And so there's, but it's not really pointing to any specific time period. Um, next, we have what's called the preterist view. And this is that the Revelation prophecy events uh, have mostly been fulfilled. In fact, uh, when we talk about the tribulation, the 70th week of Daniel, which Buck covered for you last week, they basically see those events mainly being fulfilled in AD 70 with the destruction of Jerusalem. And certainly no later than the, the Bar Kokhba Revolt back in eighty one thirty, I think is the date of that. So these are all past. They're they're present ever since that time. That's what's been going on, and so they were fulfilled eighty seventy. You know, hard time with this. I mean, I think that uh, this does an injustice to the nature of the book of prophecy, and it also takes away from the the normal meaning of words, the kind of the normal. Uh, hermeneutic, the normal interpretation we use when we approach the scriptures. The third one I want to mention to you is this historist view, historicist view. It's basically that Revelation prophecies, events, that they've been unfolding in history. Basically, they look back at John's time and say, okay, well, since this time, these events have kind of been unfolding for us. 
So the church, since John's day, they're going to unfold into the second coming of Christ. Uh, In this view, Revelation doesn't just deal with future time, but covers all of history. Uh, The problem here is that adherence to this view, for some reason, always see the culmination of these things happening in their day. And so we see about 50 different views or different interpretations from, you know, people who hold this, this point of view. And, well, you know, they can and they do because they do the same thing. They take that normal approach of the interpretation and they abandon it. And also, you know, the, this view, as Buck talked about when we talked about the rapture, and he stressed the importance of an imminent return of Christ. Well, this view has to ignore an imminent return. Because basically, what they're saying is, it's kind of like when you go to a play, all right? Now, I go to a play, and let's say I don't know the time. Well, I can kind of watch what's going on. I can see, here are the stagehands, and they're kind of getting things set up. So I know, okay, we're rolling a little bit further. Everything is set up. They kind of move into place. They ask me to sit in my seat. I come and sit in my seat. And then the show starts. So... Everything is kind of building up, and I know, and I can see, and pretty much know right when things are going to begin, and I'm right there. So it kind of views, kind of kills the whole view of imminency. Uh, this is a lot of what I was taught when I first became a Christian. You know, I was, uh, I mean, I know what to do with it then, but basically, you know, I was told, okay, look, here we have World War One, and this is seal number one. And then we have World War II, and that's seal number two. And so now we're waiting for the what's next. This is, you know, seal number three. And so, you know, you kind of see yourself in history, even though there are still some things coming in the future until the second coming of Christ. So if you kind of look at today's events and you kind of place them in the tribulation period of any way, well, then that's a historicist-type view. However, when we look at this, we hold a more of a futurist view that Revelation, the book of Revelation presents prophetic events that are mostly awaiting fulfillment in the future. So the book of Revelation, the tribulation period, if you see it as mostly primarily, even exclusively as future, then you're a futurist. In which case, it's not only precarious, but a little bit contradictory to point at current events and see them as you know, fulfilling uh, events that are taking place in the tribulation so a futurist is not impressed by such things as the dating game or name your antichrist or you know things like this these games that that people play i mean I'd, i mean i i mean some of you may have too i mean this may be foreign to some of you but i mean i grew up going and listening to people talk about i really want to talk to you about how ronald reagan is the antichrist and present why i mean you know you know or let's talk about bill gates right now or saddam hussein you know, uh, Barack Obama. Yeah, I mean, just different people's names, and everybody has a wonderful and very interesting way to get people's names and different things to match up to 666. But, you know, that's not what the futurist does. And so when I look and I see, and, you know, Jesus, you know, talks about these things at the beginning of birth pains, and uh, these things must happen, but the end is not yet. Well, I mean, I look at those things and I say, well, it's not that there won't be any wars or rumors of war until this time. You know, what I'm saying is, and what the future says is that there will always be wars and rumors of wars. And so we should see wars and rumors of wars, but that doesn't necessarily mean that the end is yet. In other words, you know, you can point at signs of the end, you know, and you're right. I mean, we're closer to the end now than we were when I started this presentation. 
but, but they're the same signs that they've been around for thousands of years. And I mean, they may increase with intensity. You know, they may subside. They may increase again. Israel may be gathered. Israel may be scattered. Um, you know what happened? Israel was gathered before 1948. Uh, it wasn't the first time that they had gathered. They were gathered in 130 A.D. And when they were actually established as a kingdom and they minted coins. And, you know, so this isn't the first, 1948 isn't the first regathering of Israel since A.D. Uh, 70. But, you know, our, our God is a pretty big God. I mean, I mean, he can do anything. And it's amazing. So, you know, it's possible that events that are taking place, earthquakes and things, you know, could be leading up to this. I mean, everything is leading up to it. But I'm not going to place my money on any specific event or time because I'm a futurist. And, you know, so I see these things are things that are going on and that the things of tribulation are in the future. So here's a little thing about the preterist view, you know. So it says relax, you know, it all happened in 70 AD, should say AD 70. But, you know, it'd be tough. You know, these poor guys that show signs of the end is coming, it would really put them out of a job. It'd be be difficult because, I mean, this doesn't sell so well. So the chart that we've given you and what we're talking about is a futurist chart. Um, This is the typical premillennial position, you know, Others have their chart. If you looked at a preterist chart, it is, I mean, it's awesome. I mean, an engineer would get a PhD by simply putting that chart together. It's, it's unbelievable. But this is our chart, where we are and where, where we stand. You know, we, we have the things, the 70th week of Daniel is not being fulfilled. We see it in the future as something to come. So here it is. So what is the tribulation? It's a, a question a lot of you have and came here tonight. You know, I'm going to give you kind of a quick overview of the tribulation. We're going to touch on a, num- a couple of these passages up here. And then we'll walk into more detail into the book of Revelation. So when I used to cover this at Dallas Seminary, what I'm going to cover tonight used to be about five weeks and about 15 to 20 hours of material. And we've got about an hour and 45 minutes so I'm not, not going to get to everybody's question <laughs> and everything everybody wants to cover, but I'm more than open to answer questions later or take your emails or you can come visit me at Southwood or I'll meet you somewhere. I, I, I love talking about this topic and, and uh, love walking, walking through things with people. So the tribulation, if we look back at our chart, you know, it was, it's a seven-year period. We talk about that the rapture precedes it. The rapture of the church, all those who believe in Christ and his work for us on our behalf and saved us from wrath and from penalty of our sin, who are around at the time of the rapture will be taken up. Uh, then there will come a time that will start the, the tribulation period, which is a, a signing of a covenant between the Antichrist and Israel. And so there will be three and a half year period that will take place from that start to the middle of the tribulation, which at that time, the Antichrist will break the covenant made with Israel, and then we'll have the last three and a half years of the tribulation known as the Great Tribulation. So that's kind of real real quick. We'll get to this in a second, but we'll talk about the the two great purposes. So now I want to start off with Jeremiah 35 through 7. If you have your Bibles, Get them handy, lick your fingers, 
because we're going to do a lot of sword drills tonight, okay? We're, we're going to be moving pretty quickly because I want to get through as much as I can. I promise you I, I will end with a reading of Revelation 19, 11 through 20, and we're going to get there. So Jeremiah 30, 5 through 7. For thus says the Lord, I have heard a sound of terror, of dread, and there is no peace. Ask now and see if a male can give birth. Why do I see every man with his hands on his loins as a woman in childbirth? And why have all the faces turned pale? Alas, for that day is great. There is none like it, and it is the time of Jacob's distress. But he will be saved from it. Uh, One thing I want to say is, you know, there's a number of phrases, you know, as you work through the scriptures that refer to this tribulation, this time uh, that's coming, you know, uh, such as uh, common is the the day of the Lord. You often see in the prophets um, a trouble or tribulation, the great tribulation, which we have a time or trouble. We have the time of Jacob's trouble, you know, that we that we see here. And so when you step in, you you see, here's a theme a day of the Lord that's coming. And we know that there's a part fulfillment here, but that as it's fulfilled, it still looks forward to another fulfillment. And there have been many days of the Lord throughout history. And this is a time when God visits in judgment. Let's look at Daniel 9, uh, 24 through 27. Seventy weeks have been decreed for your people. In your holy city, to finish the transgression, to make an end of sin, to make atonement for iniquity, to bring in everlasting righteousness, to seal up vision and prophecy, and to anoint the most holy place. So you are to know and discern that from the issue of a decree to restore and rebuild Jerusalem until Messiah, the Prince, there will be seven weeks and 62 weeks. It will be built again with plaza and moat, even in the times of distress. Then, after the 62 weeks, the Messiah will be cut off and have nothing. And the people of the prince who is to come will destroy the city and the sanctuary. And its end will come with a flood. Even to the end, there will be war. Desolations are determined. And he will make a firm covenant with many for one week. So this is talking about the Antichrist making a covenant with Israel. But in the middle of that week, he will put a stop to sacrifice and grain offering. So we're seeing some framework putting on the tribulation period. Um, So in the middle, he cuts it, breaks the covenant. And on the wing of abominations will come one who makes desolate. Even until a complete destruction, one that is decreed, is poured out on the one who makes desolate. So he makes a strong covenant, or makes a firm covenant, we talked about this, uh, with many for one week, or a set of sevens, we're talking about seven years. In the middle of that, he'll put a stop to the sacrifice and grain offering. You know, so now we have equivalent time indicator, three and a half years, three and a half years, time times and a half time. One year, the time, two years, 
translating from the times, in a half time. And on the wing of abominations will come the one who makes desolate. So here you have the Antichrist who will make a pact with Israel, beginning of the tribulation, but in the middle he breaks it. The Antichrist will break his covenant and desecrate the temple by demanding worship of himself. And then at Christ's second coming, the Antichrist and his false prophet will be cast into the lake of fire. We'll see that at the very end when we get to Revelation 19 through 20. So fun times, you know, it's a real cheery period in Israel's history. So, and of course, you know, Daniel didn't completely understand, uh, but you know, in the 21st century, thank, thank goodness we have it all figured out, don't we? Um, so let's uh, go forward to Matthew 24. We're going to look at 21 through 28. For then there will be great tribulation. Um, here, I don't think this is a, a technical term as we use it, you know, capital G, capital T, the, the great tribulation, but it's meaning like great and serious, severe. But Christians are always going to have tribulation. We're always going to face persecution, hard times. Uh, But this is qualitatively different. Such has not occurred since, since the beginning of the world until now, nor ever will be. Unless those days had been cut short, no life would have been saved. But for the sake of the elect, those days will be cut short. Then if anyone says to you, behold, here is the Christ, or there he is, Do not believe him, for false Christs and false prophets will arise and show great signs and wonders so as to mislead, if possible, even the elect. Behold, I have told you in advance. So if they say to you, behold, he's in the wilderness, well, don't go out. Or behold, he is in the inner room, don't believe him. For just as the lightning comes from the east and flashes even to the west, so will the coming of the Son of Man be. Wherever the corpse is, there the vultures will gather. Uh, Flash forward, take a look at 2 Thessalonians. Here we see that Paul is taking the themes. He's marching them forward. He's looking back at Daniel and he's bringing them forward and, uh, you know, he's providing it. It's one of the great things about Revelation is, I mean, it takes so much. I mean, you've got to look back at the covenants early covenants that God made with Israel. I mean, you're marching back to Genesis. You're marching through the prophets. You're, you're going into the gospels. You're going into the, to the epistle literature. I mean, it's a great picture of the fulfillment and the wholeness of God's word. I mean, you know, even if, you know, we didn't have councils and creeds, almost the book of Hebrews and the book of Revelation almost show, here's the canon. Here's God's word. So 2 Thessalonians 2 3 through 12. Let no one in any way deceive you, for it will not come unless the apostasy comes first. And the man of lawlessness is revealed, the son of destruction, who opposes and exalts himself above every so called God or object of worship, so that he takes his seat in the temple of God, displaying himself as being God. Do you not remember that while I was still with you, I was telling you these things? And you know what restrains him now, so that in his time he will be revealed. For the mystery of lawlessness is already at work. Only he who now restrains will do so until he is taken out of the way. Then the lawless one will be revealed, whom the Lord will slay 
with the breath of his mouth and bring to an end by the appearance of his coming. That is, the one whose coming is in accord with the activity of Satan, with all power and signs and false wonders, and with all the deception of wickedness for those who perish, because they did not receive the love of the truth so as to be saved. For this reason, God will send upon them a deluding influence, so that they will believe what is false, in order that they all may be judged who did not believe the truth, but took pleasure in wickedness. So Paul is getting his imagery from Daniel, from other Christian Christological expectations and Jewish eschological expectations, I mean expectations of the end times. Uh, So there's some kind of antichrist figure who is going to come and do miracles and deceive people. And it's happening at a certain period of time. And this is part of the whole context, that time, that hour, that day that is still yet to come. Um, flash forward to uh, Romans 11 through 13. I, I mean, sorry, Revelation 11 through 13. I'm not, I'm not going to take time to read it here because we're going to step into Revelation. And actually, some of these verses I've just read will reflect back on when, we, when we're in Revelation. But in Revelation 11 through 13, you know, here, you know, looking at 11 two specifically, it says, Do not measure the court outside the temple. Uh, leave that out, for it is given over to the nations, and they will trample the holy city for 42 months. So again, we're seeing more time work, more framework kind of putting around this time of the tribulation. 42 months, three and a half years. Okay? And, you know, and I will grant authority to my two witnesses, and they will prophesy for 1,260 days. 1,260 divided by 360, three and a half years. And then we, if you look at 12.6, also a time indicator. 13.5, a time indicator. And so you have all these time indicators um, as Daniel has tied to this coming tribulation period. And Jesus mentions it, refers us back to Daniel. Revelation mentions it, talks about the beast doing false, uh, uh, false Messiah type things. And use similar time indicators, casting this, you know, sometime yet into the future. And we're, we're going to get all into that a little bit more. So then the question is, and next is, okay, well, is this how most people have seen this? I mean, this is, most people take this. I mean, this seems kind of awkward and odd as we, as, we, as we look forward to it, you know. Or do they all look back and say, hey, well, it all happened in A.D. 70. Relax. We're just waiting for the resurrection of the dead now. But here, through Daniel, Revelation, others that we mentioned, you had this handout, we kind of see a framing going on. We see this full seven-year period being inaugurated by the signing of the covenant between the Antichrist and Israel. And then you have this preceding three-and-a-half-year period, or sorry, not preceding, proceeding, coming after. Two witnesses, uh, temple restored, Israel flees. We'll talk about that in a little bit. Saints protected. Um, see the trumpets coming out here. We see this, that the seals begin. Um, you know, for me, uh, I'll talk about this a little bit. When, when we talk about the seals, I don't, not, I don't just see it as open this seal, this happened, it closed. Second seal, open this happened, it closed. What I see is an unfolding. So as the seal opens, it remains open. Second seal opens, remains open. And these, these things are happening. They're typical of the, the tribulation period. Then we have the breaking of the covenant and the beginning of the second three and a half years. 
And that's where we see the two beasts. We see the temples desecrated. Israel's in the wilderness and saints are being martyred and then the outpouring of the bold judgments. And so we'll, we'll look at um, kind of those comparisons between the trumpets and the bold judgments, which you, I think you have, but we'll, we'll look at it here in a little bit. And so, um, so we're going to unpack this as we're, as we're going on. Um, I put this here, um, I normally would walk more into this and kind of walk through it. Um, so what do the early Christian writings say? What do, the, what do these early Christians say? You know, sometimes we go back and we look, because these are the, the first people that are kind of looking at, you know, what's been written. And so you have these writings, you know, these Christians from about eight, uh, 80, 70 to 8200. So they're kind of fresh off the destruction of Jerusalem. So, I mean, what are they saying? You know, what are they thinking? Well, if we were to go back and look at certain ones of these and kind of walk through them and see, well, what you would see, see is that, I mean, they're very familiar, very intimately involved with the destruction of Jerusalem and these events that have happened. But yet they still translate, they still interpret, they still look and they see these things of the tribulation as still things that are in the future and still yet to come. Two main purposes of the tribulation. Uh, the first one is this, this purification, this, this conversion of Israel. We're going to look more at that later. So trying to help with time here. So we'll, we'll look at that a little bit more as we step back into it. But it's this time. Uh, the second thing that we see is that it's a judgment on the nations. Um, and we'll step into that a little bit later too. But So we have two main purposes. A purification, conversion of Israel during this time. And we see a judgment on the nations. Okay, so I'm going to walk you through quickly. Kind of church, the tribulation period, the reign of Christ. Kind of how I see outlined the book of Revelation. So we start off and we have the, the, the introduction, the visions of Christ. We move to, we have the... The seven messages, these are the, you know, to the churches and, and things like this that come. Uh, then we have the heavenly stage. Here's another thing that, that provides kind of confusion too when people look at tribulation period, they're trying to look at revelation, they're trying to understand what's going on. It's, when you're looking at revelation, it can be a bit, a little bit like watching a movie, okay? So they step in and we have this, this heavenly stage that's going on. It's not necessarily prophetic, but it's kind of up here in heaven and going on. And so down here on the earth, it's just kind of like, but you know, there's this going on. So kind of camera one up here. And then you step in to what's going on on the earth. So it's kind of like events going on, shift camera angle, go down. This is what's going on on the earth. So we see the seven seals. Then with the opening of the seventh uh, seal, we have the, the trumpets beginning. So we have the, the seven trumpets, the seventh trumpet, which is you know, here taking place in the first half of the tribulation. Also, this is the time kind of we have witnesses going on. And then we have another change of the camera angle. We're back into this heavenly drama. So we've kind of what's going on in heaven, go down. This is what's happening on the earth. We get to 12 and 13, and we make this re back to camera number one. 
seeing things at a heavenly deal. It goes back. It, it recapitulates a little bit about the woman and the male child, etc. It moves us forward almost to the end of the, tri- the, the tribulation. So it's kind of giving this, this panorama of both parts of the tribulation. You know, it's kind of moving back to this heavenly stage, four and five, kind of going forward to the end, kind of what's going on heavenly. And then as we move to chapters 14, 15, 16, and 17, we have the prelude to wrath, um, as well as the bowls of wrath. This is primarily focusing on the, the, you know, the, the last part, the last three and a half years, the great tribulation. This is a last-ditch effort to get as many people to repent as possible. And then a pouring out of the bowls of wrath. So I'll show that they're referring to the very end. There's some, there's some certain descriptions, some things that we know that don't happen to the midpoint. So the Antichrist kingdom, etc., certain things like that. So we'll, we'll see that play out. Then we have this thing, this mystery, this, this Babylon, um, you know, where we have this, this interpreting angel that comes along and he says, hey, John, let me interpret some of these things for you. And then he interprets and John is still like, can I get a second interpretation? Because that didn't make any sense to me. But we, so we have that's what's going on. John's like, okay, well, what does that mean? Not typical pop, apocalyptical literature, but... Okay, that's okay. We'll, we'll work through that. So um, 19 is kind of a transitional verse. I mean, it's kind of the closing of the tribulation. The Christ is coming. Um, so it's kind of that, it's a tri- little bit of a tri- pivotal uh, chapter. It's a kind of moving, ending the tribulation. Here comes Christ. Uh, 20 is the, the millennial kingdom, focusing on the thousand-year reign. Um, so, and so we have the reign of Christ. Uh, people often ask me why a thousand years. I'm not sure why. The Bible t- says it's a thousand years and doesn't tell me that I should think about it any differently. So I take it as a little thousand years. And so then we go through uh, 21, 22, which talks about restoration of creation. So quickly remembering where we are here, church age, we had the rapture. We're now settling here, right in that middle section between the rapture of the church, the upward arrow, and the downward arrow. We're talking about that tribulation period, things that are happening before the second coming of Christ, the return of Jesus. So having come off the heavenly stage and the setting the stage, the scroll and the lamb, and you see in the right hand of the one sitting on the throne, the seven sealed scroll um, set up for us in the heavenly drama of of uh, the heavenly stage in four and five. And now says that the scroll was written on the inside and the outside. Meaning that there are some things that can be read on the outside, some things that can be read on the inside. I kind of take this to mean that, well, I mean, if you have scroll and you got some seals on it, well, probably the seals are telling you what's inside the scroll. Either that or every time you open one up, you got to kind of go and crack one open, see what's in there, close it, crack it open, see what's in it and close it. But it's kind of telling you a little bit about what's going on. And the inside is the contents. You wouldn't just have a whole bunch of sealed scrolls with no way to identify what's in it. So there's this general description of contents on the outside. Uh, that's how I take it. Uh, I think, again, the seals are kind of giving you a general description of what's going on during the tribulation period. As things, these things are open and they're happening. So when, when, when death comes, well, there's going to be death throughout the whole tribulation. 
when, when warfare comes, well, there's going to be war throughout the whole tribulation. This isn't, warfare is not going to be open and then close. There won't be any war anymore. These are things that will be open and will be going on during this. So we have the first seal. We look in, let's go ahead and dive into the book of Revelation. Revelation 6, 1 through 2. Then I saw when the lamb broke one of the seven seals and I heard one of the four living creatures saying with a voice of thunder, come. Did that sound like thunder? That's as best as I got. Okay. I looked and behold a white horse and he who sat on it had a bow and a crown was given to him and he went out conquering and to conquer. And so I take this as deception and In just a second, we'll step back into a little bit more as to why. Then continuing in verse 3, the second seal. When he broke the second seal, I heard the second living creature say, Come, and another, a red horse went out. And to him who sat on it, it was granted to take peace from the earth. And that men would slay one another, and a great sword was given to him. So I see here what's coming out is warfare of some sort. He's taking peace. Then the third seal, verse 5. Then he broke the third seal, and I heard a third living creature saying, Come, and I looked, and behold, a black horse. And he who sat on it had a pair of scales in his hand. And I heard something, and so he, he goes on to describe its famine. And we have pestilence, disease coming, and, and uh, pricing of various commodities and things going on here. And then we get uh, to the fourth seal, death. Uh, When the lamb broke the fourth seal, I heard a voice of the fourth living creature saying, Come, and I looked, and behold, an ashen horse, and he who sat on it had the name Death, and Hades was following with him. Authority was given to them over a fourth of the earth to kill with the sword and with famine and with pestilence and with the wild beast on the earth. So he comes, and often death and Hades are seen together in literature. You know, they come and they wreak havoc. And so I take these as, as deception, warfare, and famine. And I think John, let me pause for a second here. So I'm not going to pause. We're going to keep going. No rabbit trails. No rabbit trails. We will stay true. Let's go to Matthew 24. Heart. I can do it. I can, I can do it. Okay. We love the Bible. It's where we're going to stay. God's word. Here we go. Matthew 24, 4 through 5. Uh, I think John is looking back and he's, you know, he's seen these things. You know, John, you have to remember. Okay, we will diverge for a second here. You have to remember. <laughs> I'm not the deceiver. No. Um, <laughs> You have to remember that, I mean, so John is getting this revelation, and I mean, he is seeing things, I mean, that they're blowing his categories. I mean, he is seeing things, I mean, that has not been revealed to man before. I mean, when we look back in the scriptures, you know, what does it say when it talks about the day of the Lord? Something is coming like it has never been before. So what John is seeing is he's seeing things like it has never been before. 
And he is, and he is using what he has to kind of grab and, and, and describe and, and explain, you know, what he's seeing and what's going on. And, and so he sees some things and he's like, oh, this is this. And so he pulls it from the prophets or he, he pulls it from, uh, from, from Matthew. You know, he's, so the prophets and, and John, uh, Jesus, I mean, he's, he's seeing these things and he's interpreting them. It's like the first time I met uh, David Robinson. So from around the San Antonio area, love the Spurs, okay? Everybody, you still have to listen even if you don't like the Spurs. So I met David Robinson. Barely came up to the guy's armpit, okay? Huge, tall. When I talk, called my dad on the phone, Dad, guess what? Just met David Robinson. It's like, awesome, son. What was he like? I'm like, Dad, the, the guy's like an oak, I mean, he's, he's thick and he's solid. The guy's got guns. I mean, he's huge. Well, in some places, it's kind of what John's doing. I mean, I say David Robinson's, I mean, he's like an oak. Is he really an oak? Well, no, he's not. But I grew up in the hill country. In the hill country, we know what oaks are. So when I say it to my dad, it's like, okay, I'm using what I have to describe to my dad. And John is doing some of the same. So he's going back. And he's seeing this going on, and it's kind of blowing him. He goes, I know what this is, Matthew 24. 24, 4 through 5. So when Jesus is asked about the, the, the time of the end, he gives us several signs, several general descriptions of what those days will be like. And I, I think they match what John is saying. I think John is pulling back on his knowledge of the scriptures and saying, all right, I now and putting together pieces and understanding what Jesus was talking about. Okay, so now, really, 24, 4 through 5. And Jesus answered and said, See to it that no one misleads you, for many will come in my name, saying, I am the Christ, and will mislead you. Jump forward to 11 through 13. Many false prophets will arise and will mislead many, because lawlessness is increased, and most people... Love will grow cold, but the one who endures to the end will be saved. So then you have warfare. Look at Matthew 24, 6 through 7. You will be hearing of wars and rumors of wars. See to it that you are not frightened, for those things must take place. But that is not yet the end. So the wars will come. Warfare will come. John sees this and he's like, I got it. Thank you, Matthew, or Jesus in Matthew. So verse 7, for famine, nation will rise up against nation and kingdom against kingdom. In uh, various places, there will be famines and there will be earthquake. Just brushes right through it. Death, okay. Verse 7, uh, 21 and 28 as well. So there will be famines and earthquakes. They'll rise up against each other, 21. For then there will be a great tribulation such as not occurred since the beginning of the world until now, nor ever will. Unless those days had been cut short, no life would have been saved. For the sake of the elect, those days will be cut short. And so we, you know, we kind of walked through this earlier and we see a death taking place, the death of, of people and coming. So when John's seeing this, he's going, tying it back to Matthew 24 and what he sees. So I think 
Jesus is painting some kind of picture that we see now. Now in Christ, when he's, and he's talking about in his little mini apocalypse back in Matthew 24, the Olivet Discourse, I think he's talking about uh, there's going to be wars that are going on in heaven. He's, there's going to be rumors of war and war. Uh, throughout history, there's going to be intensification of these things. But clearly when we get into Revelation, we see there's going to be intensification of all these things. And Jesus is going to characterize this up to the end, up until the, the days, up until the end. And so we're going to see these things. We're going to see suffering. We're going to have tribulation. But these things will manifest themselves. We'll have warfare. We'll have death. We'll have these things are here and they're coming. So we have the next seal. Uh, let's look at Revelation 6, 9 through 11. When the lamb broke the fifth seal, I saw underneath the altar the souls of those who had been slain because of the word of God and because of the testimony which they had maintained. And they cried out with a loud voice saying, how long, O Lord, holy and true, will you refrain from judging and avenging, avenging our blood on those who will dwell on earth? Mark that because we're going to come back to that later. And there was given to each of them a white robe, and they were told that they should rest for a little while longer until the number of their fellow servants and their brethren who were to be killed, even as they had been, would be completed also. So martyrdom. Uh, we see this as well in Matthew 24, 9. Uh, when we looked at it, Matthew 24, 9. Then they will deliver you to tribulation and will kill you and you will be hated by all nations because of my name. So, you know, people, hey, you're going to suffer. You're going to be arrested. You're going to be put in jail. Um, you're going to have to testify. Many of you are going to be killed. Not everybody, but many of you. So it's going to be characterized, the tribulation is going to be characterized by martyrdom. Martyrdom is going to be taking place. People will be getting killed for Christ's name. That's what he's telling them. And the impression I get from this vision is there's a large number martyred and they're going to be added to. And so they're groaning. They're calling on God for vengeance. And we see this throughout the book of Revelation. Okay, so 6, 12 through 17. And I looked and when he broke the sixth seal and there was a great earthquake and the sun became black as sackcloth made of hair and the whole moon became like blood and the stars of the sky fell to the earth as a fig tree cast its unripe figs when shaken by a great wind. The sky was split apart like a scroll when it, when it is rolled up and every mountain and island were moved out of their places. Then the kings of the earth and the great men and the commanders and the rich and the strong and every slave and free man hid themselves in the caves and among the rocks of the mountains. And they said to the mountains and to the rocks, fall on us and hide us from the presence of him who sits on the throne from the wrath of the, and from the wrath of the lamb for the great day of their wrath has come and who is able to stand. So he's telling us this is a period this is a, a day of wrath. This is the day of the Lord. In fact, you know, you look at the Old Testament passage referring to the day of the Lord, we see the same kind of imagery. The sun is darkened. The moon becomes like blood. There's smoke and it's billowing. Uh, this is what you see after a battle. You know, cities burning. There's earthquakes. People are fleeing. They're running for their lives. So then we have a little pause. All right, you know, isn't that nice? 
I'm going to take this as a little sub uh, vision that uh, John is having here. And they're kind of filling in some details. So look at seven, chapter 7, verse 1. After this, I saw four angels standing at the four corners of the earth, holding back the four winds of the earth, so that no wind would blow on the earth or on the sea or any tree. So divine wrath is coming. It's coming. Watch out. You know, you're doomed. You're hide. Okay, we're holding it back, but it's coming. All right, two through four. And I saw another angel ascending from the rising of the sun, having the seal of the living God. And he cried out with a loud voice to the four angels to whom it was granted to harm the earth and the sea, saying, do not harm the earth or the sea or the trees until we have sealed the bond servants of our God on their foreheads. And I heard the number of those who were sealed 144,000 sealed from every tribe of the sons of Israel. So he goes on, talks about five through eight. Here are the, we're going to have so many from this tribe, so many from this tribe. It's amazing. Okay, then we get into the great multitudes. um, A great multitude of every nation. So, okay, so we have this remnant. We have this remnant of Israel that's sealed. So down here, we have these 12 blocks, 12,000, 144,000, the remnant of Israel from each tribe. And if you look up here, um, you have this redeemed from among the Gentiles. You notice there's a distinction made here in 9 through 12. After these things, I look and behold a great multitude which no one could count and every nation and all tribes and peoples and tongues standing before the throne and before the Lamb clothed in white robes and palm branches were in their hands. And they cry out with a loud voice saying, Salvation to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. And all the angels were standing around the throne and around the elders and the four living creatures. And they fell on their faces before the throne and they worshiped God saying, Amen, blessing and glory and wisdom and thanksgiving and honor and power and might be to our God forever and ever. Amen. Amen. Okay. So he's got this 144,000 that he has a number for. But then there's this great, immeasurable, innumerable, uh, redeemed number of uh, of multitude that he sees. So then there's an inquiry here. This is pretty typical of apocalyptic literature. But there's an interpreting angel, 13 through 17. Then one of the elders answered, saying to me, Those who are clothed in white robes, who are they? And where have they come from? And I said to him, my Lord, you know. It's a great response. I tried using that in my, my doctoral interview to my interviewing professors, and they didn't accept it, but this guy does. So I said to him, my Lord, you know. And he said to me, well, yeah, these are the ones who come out of the great tribulation. And they have washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. For this reason, they are before the throne of God, and they serve him day and night in the temple, and he who sits on the throne will spread his tabernacle over them. They will hunger no more, nor thirst any more, nor will the sun beat down on them, nor any heat, for the lamb is in the center of the throne, will be their shepherd, and will guide them to springs of the water of life, and God will wipe away every tear 
from their eyes. And you know the whole story. You know, you've read the book of Revelation, I hope. And there's this anticipation of what's coming. These people, they, they have glorification. They have eternal life. That's what's in store for them. And so this is specifically talking, now talking about this great multitude from every tribe, tongue, people, and nation redeemed during the first part of the tribulation. Okay. So we get to the seventh seal. And the Lamb opens the seventh seal. Chapter 8, verse 1. When the Lamb broke the seventh seal, there was silence in heaven for about half an hour. Can you imagine that? Silence in heaven for about half an hour. You know, we go to a game or we go somewhere and they have a moment of silence and we sit there for about a minute and it's awkward. There's silence in heaven for about half an hour. Hmm. I wonder why. Uh, to me, I think it's, it's communicating solemnity, uh, the, the gravity, the, the seriousness of the situation. You know, when God comes to us and asks us to rest in him and to be still, you know, or, uh, I think in this stillness what's happening is, uh, you know, we're kind of moving past that awkwardness beginning and beginning to realize the immensity of what's going on, the gravity, the intenseness of, of what's happening. So it says for about half an hour, silence. Okay. Then I saw... Seven angels who stand before God and seven trumpets were given to them. So now we have the opening of the seventh seal, which begins the procession and a movement into details about divine wrath, etc. And that's what's going to be poured out in the tribulation. But, but real quickly, kind of before we keep going and keep going and keep going, we've, we've hit seals and all this stuff and it's 144,000 and these things. And I just want to kind of pause for a second and say, this, this is kind of where we've been. We've had these six seals open. We've got deception, warfare, famine, death, martyrdom, divine wrath. These things are being poured out. Not poured out, closed, poured out, closed, poured out, closed, poured out. These are the things that are typifying the tribulation and what's going on and what's happening. So in the midst of all the bad, in the midst of wrath, there's mercy. There's grace. Uh, there's still redemption going on. We have the preservation of 144,000 Israelites. It doesn't make any sense to me to call out tribes and numbers and such unless the intention is that these are Hebrews, uh, Israelites, or that, you know, that they constitute, should constitute the Old Testament promised remnant. That's how I see it. Again, we'll get Revelation chapter 11 later. I think this is kind of also looking there, 25 through 27. But then we have salvation for a multitude of martyrs, those who suffer martyrdom during the tribulation. And there's a promise for them. They'll be saved. So you have seven angels with seven trumpets after about a half hour of silence. And they come in, they line up, they get their trumpets, and they blow their blast. Yes, this is a trumpet. Okay. More like this. These are trumpets um, that blast. These are pronouncements. Um, this is... And from them, we see all kinds of horrible things that come. And you can take a little bit, look at what these, these trumpets, these judgments are like. You know, they're, they're targeting the earth. So on this side, you have the trumpets, the first half, 
Trumpets are taking place during the first half of the tribulation. The bowls, the wrath being poured out is taking place during the second half. So first three and a half years, second three and a half years. And here's some parallels. You have earth, third of the trees and grass. And I know there's discussions about what is meant by earth and the land. I don't have time for that discussion. We can talk about it later if you want. Okay. Um, time of the bowls, sores on all people. Sea, third of ships and sea life. Sea and the bowls, all sea life. Rivers, a third poison. Rivers, all become blood. Trumpets, sun and moon, one third darken. Sun, it burns people. Uh, people, five months of torments. Uh, over here, you have the kingdom, darkness. Uh, people, a third killed. You have Euphrates, the great battle of Armageddon. Judgment, Christ reigns. The end of the tribulation, he comes back in the air. It's finished. So, quick, kind of brief walkthrough here. Um, so the sun and moon darken. Uh, again, image of warfare, battle, conflict, these things that are going on. Five months of torment and 9-5. We see it targeting people. Judgment ultimately ends the trumpet pronouncements, uh, pronouncing judgment that Christ is taking his throne and beginning to reign. It's interesting that all these trumpets and bowls and, and such, they flash forward to Christ ultimately taking his throne. So I think all of them, the point is that these aren't just pointless judgments that are happening. They aren't just accomplishing nothing. They are, in a real sense, the process of Christ coming again. So, by chapter 10, let's fast forward. Chapter 10, 1 through 11. A little interesting piece here. I saw another strong angel coming down out of heaven, clothed with a cloud. And the rainbow was upon his head. And his face was like the sun, and his feet like pillars of fire, and he had in his hand a little book, which was open. He placed his right foot on the sea and his left foot on the land, and he cried out with a loud voice, as when a lion roars, and he had cried out, the seven peals of thunder uttered their voices. When the seven peals of thunder had spoken, I was about to write, and I heard a voice from heaven saying, seal, open the things which the seven peals of thunder have spoken and do not write them down. Then the angel whom I saw standing on the sea and on the land lifted up his right hand to the heaven and swore by him who lives forever and ever, who created heaven and the things in it and earth and the things in it and the sea and the things in it, that there will be delay no longer. But in the days of the voice of the seventh angel, when he's about to sound, then the mystery of God is finished, as he preached to his servants, the prophets. And the voice which I heard from heaven, I heard again speaking with me and saying, go, take the book which is open in the hand of the angel who stands on the sea and on the land. So I went to the angel, telling him to give me the little book. And he said to me, take it and eat it, and it will make your stomach bitter. But in your mouth it will be sweet as honey. I took the little book out of the angel's hand and I ate it. And in my mouth it was sweet as honey. And when I had eaten it in my stomach, it was made bitter. And they said to me, you must prophesy again concerning many peoples and the nations and the tongues. What? (laughs) I mean, what is that? What's this? We've We've got somebody eating a scroll in the Bible. Anybody else eat a scroll in the Bible? Isaiah? 
Yeah. <laughs> Thanks, Sylvia. He ate a lot of strange things, though. Um, um, uh, and so Ezekiel, he ate a scroll too. So what's the image here? What's the point? Well, this is what a prophet does. You know, the way I'm taking this is that God is placing in them, he's internalizing in them his word. And when they speak, they will begin to speak prophetically again. They will be speaking his word. And that's why it is sweet in their mouth. And that's why he ends the passage by saying, you know, basically they're being recommissioned. And they said to me, you must prophesy again concerning many things. The word of God has been put in their mouth again. Now it's like bitter, bitterness in their stomach because the words that are going to be the words of God again are going to be words of judgment. So it becomes bitter to them, particularly to the ones who hear it. So then he gives a measuring rod like a staff. Chapter 11, verses 1 and 2. Then there was given to me a measuring rod like a staff. And someone said, get up and measure the temple of God and the altar and those who worship in it. Leave out the court which is outside the temple and do not measure it for it has been given to the nations and they will tread underfoot the holy city for 42 months. So it's going to be given to the Gentiles, the nations. So there's a temple. Well, well, wait a second. Most of the people in church history believe that Revelation was written in AD 90 and it was, the temple was destroyed in AD 70. Well, what are we talking about here? So, I mean, maybe this is a heavenly temple. Well, okay, well, then you'd have to explain how Gentiles are going to be trampling the outer courts of the heavenly temple. Well, that's weird. So I think you've got Jerusalem here. This is going to be Jerusalem, and you've got a temple here, and you've got the outer courts, and they're going to be trampling on it for 42 months, three and a half years. Keep this part in mind. We're going to see some of these time indicators coming. Look at verse 3 real quick. It says, And I will grant authority to my two witnesses, until, uh, and they will prophesy for 1260 days, clothed in sackcloth. So now we have an option. This is going to be 1260 days equal to this 42 months that we just read about. It's three and a half years at the same time. It's a different time. Those are your two options. So you have 1260 days. And we know that the two witnesses are going to be prophesying for 1260 days. And then he identifies these with symbolic imagery. Look at 11.4. These are, these are the two olive trees, talking about the witnesses, and the two lampstands that stand before the Lord of the earth. Where does John get that? I skipped a slide. I love my slides. How can I skip this? Okay, so today we have these judgments and things and these you know, things that we face, and they go up and down, up and up and down. We get to the tribulation, trumpets, oh, really bad. We get to the bulls, even worse. Okay, there. Now I feel better about myself. I didn't miss my slide. So you're right, Zechariah 4. We have to step back to Zechariah 4. See, that's why I yellow tab the top of my Bible here. I have to confess, Zechariah 4, it's not part of my everyday reading. But... Not that it shouldn't be all inspired word of God. Verse 1. Then the angel who was speaking with me returned and roused me 
as a man who is awakened from his sleep. And he said to me, what do you see? And I said, I see, and behold, a lampstand, all of gold with its bowl on top of it. And its seven lamps on it with seven spouts belonging to each of the lamps, which are on top of it. Also two olive trees. By it, one on the right side of the bowl and the other on its left side. And then I answered and I said to the angel who was speaking with me, saying, what are these, my Lord? So the angel who was speaking with me answered, Do you not know what these are? And I said, well, no, my Lord. That's why I asked. Um, So then he answered to me, this is the word of the Lord to Zerubbabel, saying, not by by my might nor by power, but by my spirit, says the Lord of hosts. What are you, O great mountain? Before Zerubbabel, you will become a plain, and he will bring forth the top stone with shouts of grace, grace to it. So the top stone, meaning the capstone, Zerubbabel's going to finish um, the temple. And the word of the Lord came to me saying, the, hand of Zer- the hands of Zerubbabel have laid the foundation of this house, and his hands will finish it. Then you will know that the Lord of hosts has sent me to you. For the one who is despised the day of small things, but these seven will be glad when they see the plumb line in the hand of Zerubbabel, these are the eyes of the Lord, which range to and fro throughout the earth. And then I answered to him, what are these two olive trees on the right of the lampstands and on its left? And I answered the second time and said to him, what are the two olive branches, which are beside the two golden pipes, which empty the gold, golden oil from themselves? So he answered me saying, do you not know what these things are. And again, I had to say, well, no, my Lord, that's why I asked. Then he said, these are the two anointed ones who are standing by the Lord of the whole earth. So the two sons of oil, namely Joshua and Zerubbabel, uh, these point to the vision is that of light bearing or a witness. Uh, Israel is God's witness and Zerubbabel and Joshua, they're witness to his power, seeing the completion of the, of the temple. And in the tribulation, it talks about two witnesses that will arise. So here in this time, it's referring to Zerubbabel and Joshua, most likely. And he reminds them, remember, this will be built not by my pite nor power, but by my spirit. There's going to be all kinds of opposition, but I'm going to overcome that. Notice Revelation 11. Then I was given a measuring rod, and I was told, rise and measure. Okay, Zechariah 4, plumb line, measuring, sizing it up. What was the whole deal of Zechariah? What was going on? Well, he's encouraging them to finish the temple. So Zechariah 4, finish the job. And then he says, at this time, 1260 days, they're prophesying. Two olive trees, two lampstands. They're making a connection. Um, and now we're supposed to import that connection you know, to now. So what's going on in Zechariah? Okay, so they're building a temple back then. And if anyone would harm them, then the two witnesses or these two preachers, prophets, if anyone would try to harm them, fire pours from their mouth and consumes their foes. So what does this symbolize? Well, I think, I think it symbolizes that they have the ability like Moses or Elijah or Elisha and others to call down judgments by, by speaking judgments forth. If anyone would harm them, And this is how he's going to be doomed. They have the power to do this, and they can bring it down. So, But now, going on in 11, something bad happens. It says, when they had finished their testimony, 
the two witnesses? So who are the two witnesses? It's a great question. But when they finish their testimony, the beast that comes up from the abyss will attack them and overpower and kill them. Their bodies will lie in the street of the great city, which is figuratively or spiritually called Sodom and Egypt, where also their Lord was crucified. So here we are. We're at the end of their testimony. We're given a little bit of indication here at at the end of the 1260 days, so the first three and a half year period of prophesying bad things are going to happen. At the end, the beast who's rising up out of the abyss is going to kill them. All right. It says, and then their dead bodies lie in the street of the great city. So what is the great city? Well, it says figuratively, spiritually, mystically, whatever. It's called Sodom and Egypt. So this great city in which their body lies well, it's Sodom. It's Egypt. Well, it's, it's Jerusalem. He makes it clear because he says, where also their Lord was crucified. You know, Jerusalem's become so corrupt by this time, it's almost like it's become a Vegas. So he refers to it as Sodom, as Egypt. But he wants to be clear that this is what Jerusalem becomes like by that last phrase, where also their Lord was crucified. For three and a half uh, days, some from the peoples, the tribes, and languages will come and they'll gaze. Remember, they've, they've encamped the city. They've been charting around it three and a half years. Um, will gaze at their dead bodies and refuse to let them be placed in a tomb. That's not good. And those who dwell on the earth will rejoice over them and make merry and exchange presents because these two prophets had been a torment to them. Their words were bitter. Sweet in their mouth, the prophet's mouth, became bitter in their stomach because they were words of judgment. So we have this transition going on from the first three and a half years of the tribulation to the second half. So we walk in here, verses uh, 11, uh, chapter 11, 11 through 14. It says, but after three and a half days, the breath of life from God came into them and they stood on their feet and great fear fell upon those who were watching them. And they heard a loud voice from heaven saying to them, come up here. And then they went up to heaven in the cloud and their enemies watched them. And in that hour, there was a great earthquake and a tenth of the city fell. 7,000 people were killed in the earthquake and the rest were terrified and gave glory to the God of heaven. The second woe is past. Behold, the third woe is coming. Whoa, whoa. So here we have, we're placing, we're placing this and basically we have this it's fulfilling the campaign promise. It's this uh, rises out, the, the beast rises out, rules for 42 months. And at the end of that 42 months, at that end of that first 42 months, the, the, the bowls of wrath are coming. They're going to be poured out. They let them lie in the street and they're thinking, well, yay. But look at verse 15. Then the seventh angel sounded and there were loud voices in heaven saying, the kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ and he will reign forever. And so now we're back in heaven trumpet we're out of the details we're seeing worship going on um, because of what God is doing they're recognizing 
um, that the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ, and they're worshiping. So now we get to 12 and 13. Uh, Again, switching camera. Remember, we're up in the heavenly drama. We're seeing what's going on up here. Also kind of see it as the center of the book, not because it is literally in the center of the book, but this is kind of where things hinge. We start seeing um, a lot of themes and uh, what's, what's going on here in the heavenly drama. So look at chapter 12, verses 1 through 6. A great sign appeared in heaven, a woman clothed with the sun and the moon under her feet, and on her head a crown of twelve stars, and she was with child, and she cried out, being in labor and in pain to give birth. Okay, I'm only going to be able to make a few comments here, but Revelation 12, 1 through 12, this was the Christmas sermon I gave at Southwood this Christmas. So over here at Anderson, you probably had nice, sweet, tiny little baby Jesus. At Southwood, this is what they got. So sorry, I warped everybody over there. But anyway, and she cried, verse two, and she cried out with child and she cried out being in labor and in pain to give birth. I made that comment earlier because I can only say so much here, but I develop it more in that sermon if y'all want to. Go online and listen to it. Then another sign appeared in heaven, and behold, a great dragon having seven heads and ten horns, and on his heads were seven diadems. And, this, and his tail swept away a third of the stars of heaven and threw them to the earth. And the dragon stood before the woman who was about to give birth, so that when she gave birth, he might devour her child. And she gave birth to a son, a male child, who was to rule all the nations with a rod of iron. And her child was caught up to God and to his throne. And then the woman fled into the wilderness, where she had a place prepared by God, so that there she would be nourished for 1,260 days. Again, we're seeing time parameters going on here. So we have another indicator. She flees into a wilderness place where she's going to be protected for 1,260 days, seven through eight. And there was war in heaven, Michael and his angels waging war with the dragon. The dragon and his angels waged war. So if, if you're not catching some of these themes here, you know, as we say the dragon, it's talking about Satan. So we're talking about the beast. We're talking about the antichrist. Just want to fill some of that in a little bit here. And they were not strong enough and there was no longer a place for them in heaven. So we have this invisible heavenly realm going on. I mean, is it kind of sh- shocking that we see this battle of Satan and angels, demons taking place in heaven? Well, it's not really like heaven. It's heavenly places. You know, we've seen this before. This is kind of Ephesians six twelve. It's kind of the same discussion for you know, the armor of God passage. For our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the powers of this dark world, and against spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. So it's kind of the same thing. So it's not really shocking that this is taking place. It's the same thing we're seeing in Revelation 12. We're seeing a, a vision of a cosmic battle taking place in this kind of heavenly realm, not heaven, but place that we don't see, have access to. And where are Satan and his demons thrown down to? Well, they're thrown down to earth. So you think things are bad now when it comes to spiritual warfare. So let's jump back. Um, 
there was this great, uh, the great dragon was thrown down, the serpent of old. Who's the great dragon? Serpent of old. Genesis, ancient serpent, serpent of old. Who is called devil and Satan and deceives the whole world and was thrown down to the earth as angels were thrown down with him. Let's go to verse 10. Then I heard a loud voice in heaven saying, Now now the salvation and the power and the kingdom of our God and the authority of his Christ have come. For the accuser of our brethren has been thrown down. He who accuses them before our God day and night. And they overcame him because of the blood of the lamb and because of the word of their testimony. And they did not love their life even when faced with death. For this reason, rejoice, O heavens, and you who dwell in them. Woe to the earth and the sea, because the devil has come down to you, having great wrath, knowing that he only has a short time. So Satan's come down, and he knows, he doesn't know the timing. He doesn't know how these things are going to play out, but he knows it's short. And he comes He's not really interested in time. He just knows that it's clicking or ticking. Um, and this is a, now he has a strategy. His strategy is simple. To do as much damage to the souls of men and women as possible. To take down as many people as possible. 13 and 14. And when the dragon saw that he was thrown down to the earth, he persecuted the woman who gave birth to the male child. But the two wings of the great eagle were given to the woman so that she could fly into the wilderness to her place where she was nourished for a time and times and a half time, year, two years, half year, three and a half years, 1260 days from the presence of the serpent. So I think, I don't think this is another 42 months or another 1260 days. It's just kind of, kind of stepping back like now previously as in Revelation 12, it's kind of giving you a backdrop of what's, what's going on and what's happened. So he's telling what's happening, steps back, gives another detail, picks up where he left off. Okay, so where is this woman? Well, she's now being pursued. The serpent is trying to kill her. Pours water like a river out of his mouth after the woman to sweep her away with a flood. Verse 15. Well, where does that come from? Where do we see that kind of imagery? Jeremiah, Jeremiah 46, 7 through 8, says this. Who is this that rises like the Nile, like the rivers uh, whose waters surge about? Egypt rises like the Nile, even like the rivers whose waters surge about. And he has said, I will rise and cover that land. I will surely destroy the city and its inhabitants. Um, Flip forward to 47, verse 2. Thus says the Lord, Behold, waters are going to rise from the north and become an overflowing torrent and overflow the land in all its fullness, the city and those who live in it. And the men will cry out, and every inhabitant of the land will wail. Um, so this is, and, and Jeremiah, this is looking, looking at and the way he's describing a Babylonian invasion. And I think that that's, what's being described here. I think that, that this flood that the devil is sending for the woman, it's, it's an invasion. It's a flood of an army coming to try to destroy her. So yes, I, th- I think that's what he's seeing, but I think we're supposed to make the connection with the symbolism and what's going on. Some kind of a military invasion is taking place to destroy this woman, but there's this, mi- this miraculous 
two wings of the eagle that save her. Chapter 12, verse 15. And the serpent poured water like a river out of his mouth after the woman so that it might cause her to be swept away with the flood. But the earth helped the woman and the earth opened its mouth and drank up the river which the dragon poured out of his mouth. So the dragon was enraged with the woman and he went off to make war with the rest of her children who keep their commandments with, of God and hold to the testimony of Jesus. So he's trying to pursue this woman. He's been cast down to earth. He's got seven horns, ten heads. Um, so you see the seven heads and the ten horns. I think this is representing it's Satan working through the Gentile powers. The people who are opposing God's people and trying to destroy Israel. Which That's who the woman symbolizes. If you didn't catch that, is the nation of Israel. And she's fleeing and there's a pursuit and there's something going on. It takes time. You know, military invasions don't take place in 30 seconds or a matter of minutes. It takes a long time and there's an invasion and the miraculous delivery. And she's protected for this amount of time. So the dragon, he's very, very mad because the attempt to destroy the woman's been failed. So what does he do? Well, he stands on the sea. It stands on the sand of the sea. Revelation 13, 1. And the dragon stood on the sand of the seashore. And then I saw a beast coming up out of the sea, having ten horns and seven heads. And on his horns were ten diadems. And on his heads were blasphemous names. So the beast is not the dragon. They're separate. The dragon is inspiring the beast, or probably giving the beast his authority. The beast looks like the dragon, though. Uh, It's got the same number of heads, same number of horns. It's kind of like father, like son. That's the imagery here. It's the, the image of the dragon in a certain sense. And many of you have seen in the, see in the beast. Uh, so you have the dragon, the beast, and the false prophet. It's what you know, people often refer to as the, the, the lampooning of the Trinity. It's the, the unholy Trinity, as, as some have called it. And so blasphemous names were on their head. Verse 2. And the beast which I saw was like a leopard, and his feet were like those of a bear. And his mouth... Uh, like the mouth of a lion, the dragon gave him his authority and his throne and great authority. I saw one of the heads as if it had been slain and his fatal wound was healed and the whole earth was amazed and followed after the beast and they worshiped the dragon because he gave his authority to the beast and they worshiped the beast saying, who is like the beast and who is able to wage war with him? And there was given to him a mouth speaking arrogant words and blasphemies and authority to act for 42 months given to him. So... Now we have some wrangling going on here. The dragon's throwing down. It's a time of invasion. Destroy Israel. Israel flees. Get a brief description of what's going on in the first part. The dragon is now apparently uh, working apparently through the kingdoms of the world surrounding Israel. But at some point here in the midpoint of the tribulation, the beast takes power. Satan decides to concentrate all power in this one figure. So the beast rises up and rules for 42 months. We learned earlier in chapter 11 that, that his first order business is to kill the two witnesses that had been. So now, now maybe um, the two witnesses were part of the instruments that were preventing the dragon from destroying Israel. And that's where they're centering their ministry. They were holding back judgment. Um, dragon's very mad, inspires the beast. Beast kills the witnesses, begins to reign for 42 months, which then is the second half of the tribulation which corresponds back to 11.2. 
13.6. And he opened his mouth and blasphemies against God to blaspheme his name in his tabernacle, that is, those who dwell in heaven. It was also given to him to make war with the saints and to overcome them. If you go back to 12.17, you see the rest of the offspring, not only who were not the male child. Uh, this was the one offspring. Now the rest of the offspring, those who keep the commandments of God and hold the testimony. So he's given power to make war against the saints and to conquer them. Um, he goes on, talks about the, the false prophet. So it's kind of some, some weird stuff going on. We look back in Daniel 7 and we compare it with Revelation 13. It's interesting. So in Daniel 2, you have this head of gold uh, vision and chest and arms of silver and then apparently a miniskirt of bronze um, and the legs of steel, um, of, of iron and feet with ten toes, iron or mixed with clay and somewhat fragile. And in this vision, a rock comes up and smacks him right in the feet of iron mixed with clay and the whole thing crumbles. You go to Daniel 7, and you have, a lean, you have a lion with wings. It represents Babylon. That's what the head represented as well. The bear with some ribs in his mouth, leaning on one side, um, matches the chest and arms of silver. Uh, we know um, following Babylon was the, the Medo Persian Empire. Uh, then you have the leopard with four heads. And some wings. This represents Alexander the Great and his kingdom that's split up into four kingdoms under his four generals that come after he dies. And then you have this crazy looking monster at the bottom. Um, they don't really identify what it is, but he has ten horns. So there's ten horns and uh, representing Rome. You have to trust me on that. I can't go and give you a whole bunch of background. I only have so much time. So when you get to Revelation 13... What you have here, so I'm going to sum up 13 for you without reading the whole rest of it. The beast that comes up out of the sea has the features of all of the beast smushed together. Okay? He looks like a lion and a bear and a leopard and an indescribable monster. And he has seven heads and ten horns. So what's the message? What's going on here? What is, what is John trying to communicate to us? Well, he's trying to say this is the historical culmination of all these human kingdoms that have been opposed to God and his people throughout time. And if you thought these were bad, each and every one and of themselves and in their period of time, it's all these things going to be put together and worse because this creature isn't alone. This beast isn't alone. He is going to have Satan directly giving him power and giving him all his authority. And he's going to have a false prophet that's going to do signs and wonders and an image that's going to deceive people. It's going to be horrible. In fact, if you read Daniel 7, it even says in Daniel 7 that these will each have a kingdom. And it says that their kingdom will be prolonged for a short time. So it's possible that even in the vision of Daniel, they're anticipating the revival of these kingdoms. Which means that if the Antichrist comes and somehow is able to harness the political, financial, economical, you know, et cetera, power of the whole world, it would be quite an appropriate image for describing that. So we got um, the prelude to wrath. We got the bowls of wrath. Um, you know, so moving 
pretty quickly. We see in chapter 14 is a setting of the stage, getting ready, reminding us uh, where we're at. The 44,000 gathered, um, uh, preserved. They come, make a cameo appearance again. We're going to talk about Babylon with that. 13, get to 14, 1. It says, Then look, and behold, the Lamb was standing on Mount Zion with him, 144,000, having his name um, and the name of his father written on their foreheads. I think what we're seeing here is an answer to the Old Testament expectation that God is going to gather his people, his remnant, and he's going to restore them to the land. Uh, he sealed them for protection through the, to the tribulation. And we, uh, and we see we're getting toward the, toward the end. And they're gathered, where are they gathered now? Well, they're, they're gathered in Mount Zion. They've returned. So I think this is part of the answer of Paul in eleven twenty five through 27 of, that they're going to be saved. It says, um, lest you be wise in your own sight. I want you to understand this mystery, brothers. A partial hardening has come upon Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. And in this way, all Israel will be saved. As it is written, the deliverer will come from Zion and will banish ungodliness from Jacob, Israel. And they will be my covenant. And this will be my covenant with them when I take away their sin. And so he sees the 144,000 staying on Mount Zion with the lamb who has had his name and the name of the father written on his head. Uh, two through five. And I heard a voice from the heavens like waters and sounds of thunder, harpists playing, and they sang in a new song before the throne, before the living creatures and elders. And no one could learn the song except the 144,000 that had been purchased. These are the ones who have not been defiled with women, for they've been kept, they have kept themselves chaste. They are the ones who follow the Lord uh, wherever he goes, and they have been um, purchased from among men as firstfruits of God to the Lamb. And no lie was found in their mouth, and they were blameless. So gathering among the nations, he's bringing his people back, and he's restoring them. Uh, then you have the final warnings issued uh, to mankind in 6 through 13. And 4, 14 through 20, you see that John is seeing this huge flow of blood that's representing a bloody battle. It says, uh, then I looked out, and behold, this is verse 14, a uh, cloud, and sitting on the cloud was one like the Son of Man, having a golden crown on his head and a sharp sickle in his hand. And this angel comes, cries out, put your sickle and reap, uh, for the hour to reap uh, has come, because the harvest is ripe. And then he who sat on the cloud swung his sickle over, and the earth was reaped. And another angel came out of the temple, which was in the heaven, and had a sharp sickle. And then another angel, uh, the one who has power over fire, came out from the altar and called down with a loud voice to him, a sharp sickle, saying, Put in your sharp sickle and gather the clusters of the vines, the grapes. The angel swung his sickle to the earth and gathered the clusters, the vines, threw them into the great winepress of the wrath of God. And the winepress was trodden outside the city, and blood came out from the winepress up to the horse's bridles for a distance of 200 miles. It's a lot of blood. I see the flow of blood representing it's going to be a bloody battle that's coming. And so the way I heard it before, if you want to take it literally, is, well, there's going to be some burst in the sky that all electricity will cease so you can't have a tank or a car that drives. So they got to ride horses. And so um, if you want to take it a little, I mean, 
You got to come up with something. <laughs> or maybe John has just seen a symbolic vision of a bloody battle. So, but why is the blood flowing? I mean, that's a lot of blood. It's a, it's a lot of people you got to squeeze to get that much blood. But actually, maybe some people say it was just a couple inches on the ground. And as I ride through these couple inches, it kind of splashes up. You kind of go back to Joel and you kind of see this same imagery. So here's Israel. And if I want to take the blood literally, well, I've got to have that much blood to cover that area about four and a half feet high. That's a lot of blood. Could it be literal? Well, I mean, God can do anything. I take it as this is symbolic and it's going to be an extremely bloody battle that's coming. Basically, it's setting the stage for the battle of Armageddon. Here we have Armageddon, the Valley of Decision, um, the Valley of uh, Jehoshaphat, um, the Valley of Megiddo. So it's a pretty wide valley, pretty good place for a a big battle to take place. Um, So I'm going to skip forward into 15, and we've got the seven angels, the seven plagues, and they're pouring out their wrath. And why are they pouring out their wrath? Well, in 16, verse 2, it says, um, So the first angel went and poured out the bowl on the earth, and it became loathsome and malignant and sores um, on, on these beasts. Um, so it goes through the different bowls and what's happening. And then in verse 6, it says, For they poured out the blood, and basically, why are these things Hear these things, you're righteous, O Lord, back in verse 5. Holy one, because you judge these things, for they poured out the blood of the saints and the prophets, and you have given them blood to drink. Well, because they deserve it. So, fifth seal, souls, remember the souls under the altar? And we said, when when is judgment coming? Well, here it is. He's avenging their deaths. So, you got 8 through 11, you got people gnawing their tongues. Um, sorry, we stay here. Eight through eleven, people knocking on their tongues. Not so pretty, uh, because they didn't repent of their deeds. Twelve through thirteen, again, you have the beast and the false prophet and the dragon all working together. Fourteen through seventeen, uh, I mean, I think John's seen all these things, and basically, it's horrible, horrible judgment. The chart we saw earlier, you know, we have the trumpets and these things happening. This plunge of things getting worse. The second part of we're in the second part of the tribulation now. And it's becoming indescribably worse. You know, we had partial destruction in the first half. And now we have full destruction that's going on in the second half. We get in this discussion about Babylon. Different translations have different things. Basically, quick summary, Babylon's a mystery. Um, how is it written? Well, it tells us Babylon's a mystery. We do know that it's Babylon the Great sits on many waters. It's guilty of immorality with kings and nations. Rides on the beast. Dorned in purple, scarlet, gold, and pearls. Name is a mystery. Made desolate, naked, and burned by her lovers. It's a great city which rules over the kings of the earth. So what are the seven hills? Well, is it Babylon? It's kind of common. Well, here's, here's Babylon. I mean, there's some kind of digging and excavation going on, so don't, don't look at that. But, I mean, look at all those hills and mountains. Yeah, there's none. Um, let's, let's kind of go over here to where Saddam Hussein is kind of rebuilding his tourist trap or was of Babylon. More mountains. No. How about over here? No. You know, could it be? What are these? These are the plains. The plains of what? 
Shinar. They're planes. It's flat. It's like saying Disney World is going to rule the world. And they kind of do in a way. But, you know, you got to, you know, be careful. I mean, there's, there's, there's no hills. Now, can hills come? Sure. What about Rome? Well, Rome had seven hills. Rome has seven hills. It's on seven hills. They're kind of hard to see because of where things have built out. So, hey, great, seven hills. So Rome, Rome falls. Uh, but what about the prostitute? The prostitute's sitting in Rome. So when people claim Rome, who's the prostitute? The Catholic Church, right? It's supposed to be the Catholic Church. Well, there's kind of one itty-bitty problem with that. See, the Catholic Church, the Va- that's the Vatican, well, it's across the river, and it's on a different hill called, you know, Vaticanus. So it's a problem slightly. So if you want to be literal about the seven hills on which the woman sits, even though the woman sits west, northwest of those seven hills, you know, so literal than figurative. Uh, this is the, the, over here, this is the circus of Gaius, of, of, uh, of Nero, where Christians were slaughtered. It's the stadium. Uh, we really don't have evidence that Christians were martyred in the Colosseum. And that's a notion that came way after the Colosseums were even functioning as an arena. It was very late. I hope I didn't disappoint anybody by saying that. Christians died here. And so this is where Peter, and if you were there today, and if you were to kind of turn around and see, this is what you would see. St. Peter, the cathedral. It's built right here on that location. Why? Because this is a shrine to where Peter himself is buried. So um, the Vatican's not in Rome, and it's not on the seven hills. So that provides a problem as well, too. Well, what about Jerusalem? Well, Jerusalem uh, had seven hills. In fact, early on, um, Rabbi Eleazar ben Hyrcanus makes this statement when he's talking about what Jonah, what God revealed to Jonah when he was in the belly of the whale. He says, so the fish showed him what was beneath the temple of God. And it is said he went down to the bottom of the mountains. Hence, we may learn that Jerusalem stands upon seven hills. So here are the hills kind of of Jerusalem. Um, they're harder to see. Um, so is it Babylon? Is it Rome? Is it Jerusalem? Well, there's pros and cons with all of them. Uh, I think the thing is, is that Babylon is, it's a mystery. Put it in the name. I think, you know, uh, that Babylon would actually be Babylon and Iraq, even though it's called a ministry, uh, mystery, would be the one place I would think it would not be. But, you know, who knows? There's a reason why it's called a mystery. You have seven kings, Egypt, Assyria, Babylon, Persia, Greece, Rome, um, Antichristendom. You have the eighth king, um, the beast, and the Antichrist resurrected, and the ten horns, the Antichrist allies. So Babylon, that's chapter 17. Babylon 18 goes on to discuss, uh, chapter 18 goes on to discuss a lot more. Uh, you kind of see a lot of the same things going on, but the, the destruction of commercial and the economic system of Babylon. So kind of so much of the same thing. Then you have chapter 19. This is where we'll end. So John wrote this record of his vision surrounding the Lord Jesus' second coming to share the future vindication of Jesus with its readers. 19 kind of has two parts. 1 through 10 is the rejoicing triggered by Babylon's fall. And then 11 through 21, um, the events surrounding the Lamb's return to the earth. Go to chapter 19, verse 11. 
And I saw heaven open and behold a white horse, not the same white horse from, from before. That was, um, that was a seal. This is Christ. A white horse, and he who sat on it is called faithful and true, and in righteousness he judges and wages war. His eyes are a flame of fire, and on his head are many diadems, and he has a name written on him which no one else knows except himself. He is clothed with a robe dipped in blood, and his name is called the Word of God. And the armies which are in heaven, clothed in fine linen, white and clean, were following him on white horses. From his mouth comes a sharp sword, so that with it he may strike the nations, and he will rule them with a rod of iron, and he treats he treads the winepress of the fierce wrath of God, the Almighty. And on his robe and on his thigh, he has a name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. And then I saw an angel standing in the sun, and he cried out with a loud voice, saying to all the birds which fly in mid heaven, Come, assemble for the great supper of God, so that you may eat the flesh of the kings and the flesh of commanders and the flesh of the mighty men and the flesh of the horses and those who sit on them and the flesh of all men, both free and slaves and small and great. And I saw the beast and the king of the earth and their armies assembled to make war against him who set on the horse and against his army. And the beast was seized and with him the false prophet who performed the signs in his presence by which he deceived those who had received the mark of the beast and who worshipped his image. These two were thrown alive into the lake of fire, which burns with brimstone, and the rest were killed with them. The sword which came from the mouth of him who sat on the horse and all the birds were filled with their flesh. And then I saw an angel coming down from the heaven holding the keys of the abyss. And he laid hold of the dragon and the serpent, and he bound them for a thousand years. And he threw them into the abyss and shut it and sealed it over him so that he would not deceive the nations any longer until the thousand years were completed. After these, he must be released for a short time. So we're starting to get into the millennial kingdom here. But we had the second coming of Christ, which is the hope of all believers. It's a reminder that God is in control of all things. And he's faithful to his promises and to the promises of the world. I mean, one of the biggest reasons why we as a church and our theology and our doctrine believe in a literal thousand-year reign of premillennial kingdom is that there were these covenants made with Israel. And they need to have a time of fulfillment. And this time of fulfillment is coming where they will receive a land and he will rule. And that time is coming. Uh, the, the message of Revelation, while we, while we read through and we look through several of these chapters and certain these things, we kind of look at them and we go, John, I'm not really sure what's going on here. <laughs> and, and that's okay. I mean, I, I've probably shared some things with you all tonight that some of you all are sitting there and going there, well, mm, not sure, Jason, I kind of see this. Well, that's okay. I mean, I'm perfectly okay with that. I'm just kind of giving you what I see and what I think is going on. But overall, the message of the book of Revelation, it's one of hope. It's one that we have a great God has promised these things and he will deliver them and he will be faithful. And in the end, even though we may not understand things or we may not see exactly what's going on in the end, and now we don't have to live in fear 
We don't have to worry and live in worry or in anxiety because in the end, we know what happens. Our God wins. So even if we read through some of these things and I've gone through and tried to explain to you what's going on in the tribulation period, the seven year divided by two, three and a half year periods, you had these things going on here. You had this breaking of the covenant here and then kind of the, the Antichrist rule and what's going on here brought through and finished by the return of Christ at the end. Even if we look at those and you're like, that was a lot. I just drank from a fire hose and it's going to take me a while to depress on this. It, it's okay. We know the truth. We know the end. Like I said, our God wins. Okay, let's close in prayer. Father, thank you for tonight. Thank you for your word. Lord, thank you so much that you stepped into human history and sent your one and only son, Jesus Christ, to die on the cross and raise again from the dead for the forgiveness of our sins. Lord, thank you uh, so much that, that, that you gave us your word that's not incomplete. Uh, you leave nothing to wonder. You, ne- you leave nothing uh, for, for us to, to live in a time of anxiety or, or, or instability. You, you clearly gave us a beginning. Lord, we confess, we recognize, we give you praise as the author and the creator of all things. You are very clear about that. Because you have created them and set everything in motion and you are intimately involved with us, you are in control of all of those things. You are sovereign. You are in control. And while we don't understand at times, we recognize that. Lord, thank you for our belief, but we also ask you to help us in our unbelief. Lord, thank you that you've given us a middle You've given us an end so that when we see and we know that these things are coming, regardless of what happens or or whose interpretation is which way or who understands what this way or what that way, at the end, however it plays out, Lord, we know that you win. Thank you, Lord. Thank you. We pray these things, lift them up to you, give you praise in the name of your Son by the power of your spirit. Amen. Thank you.